Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, invites you to be the informed patient with the podcast that features experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Almost all children will become infected with respiratory syncytial virus called RSV by the age of two. Infections range from mild to more severe, and RSV is a common cause of hospitalization in children under the age of five. But there's so much more that doctors still want to learn about RSV. And today I'm talking with the principal investigator of a study underway at Upstate. Dr. Joe Domikowski is a professor of pediatrics and microbiology and immunology, and he's a true expert in RSV. Welcome back to The Informed Patient, Dr. Domikowski. Thanks, Amber. It's good to be here. First, some clinical questions about RSV. How do you describe this virus? RSV is a cold and flu-like virus. It comes every winter. It's, it's quite predictable, although we don't know when the season will start and when it will go away. It's here every year. There's only been one exception. These are the babies, mostly under two years of age, that start with a nasty cold. They have a lot of junk coming out of their nose. We call it coryza or just a diffuse rhinorrhea. And then they start to wheeze. Not all of them do, but the ones that develop lower respiratory infection begin to wheeze. And that's not typical for a lower respiratory tract infection in an infant otherwise. So pneumonia doesn't typically cause wheezing, but RSV causes this entity that we refer to as bronchiolitis. And that's a wheezing illness of infants and young kids. So are pediatricians able to predict which child is gonna have just the cold symptoms in the mild case versus the one that will develop the wheezing? That's the tricky part because we know that most kids will have this infection at least once by the time they're two years old. And once the infection starts with the upper respiratory complaints, the coughing and the runny nose, uh, we don't know who's gonna progress. We know the high risk groups to progress, but typically the most common child in the hospital during the winter time has no underlying risk factors other than being only a few months old. You said they'll catch it typically at least once. Does that mean that if a child has RSV once, that doesn't protect them from getting the virus again? The first infection that we get, all of us, is usually the worst of the bunch. And we get a little bit of immunity from that. So subsequent infections tend to be much milder. Um, and we even get reinfected with this during our adult years. So uh, it is a fairly common cause of just a regular common cold in adults. and if we're around newborn babies, we have to be careful because if we have RSV, we can subject them and expose them to the infection when they get sick for the first time with RSV. That's when they get into trouble. Why does RSV seem to prefer infants and toddlers? I know you you said adults can can get it, but doesn't it prefer the younger children? It does infect and cause more dramatic clinical symptoms in the very young and in the very old, um, but the very young are being infected for the first time. So they have no immunity to this whatsoever. Subsequent infections occur in the context of some pre-existing exposure and immunity. So the immune system is able to sort of dampen things down a bit. So typically the most severe of all of the infections will be in that first year or two of life. So how do parents know, they may recognize cold symptoms, but how do they know that it's turned the corner and it's more of a severe, the bronchiolitis type of thing? Is it, is the wheezing sort of the giveaway? 
Yes, and in the subset of the young infants that that go from the upper respiratory infection to develop the lower respiratory tract illness with the wheezing, the first sign is usually that they'll start to breathe faster and sometimes with effort. So you can see the babies tugging a little bit while they're breathing. And that's a pretty important clinical sign that we watch for as pediatricians, but the parents can also notice, well, that doesn't look right. The breathing pattern just seems a little bit odd. In the first four to six weeks of life, um, RSV can be associated with apnea or periodic breathing, where the, the breathing sort of starts and stops. And we often admit young infants, newborns, to the hospital with RSV because they sort of are forgetting to breathe. And we have to just watch them carefully until they're past that acute phase of the infection so they're not having those periodic breathing spells anymore. If a child at home is treated appropriately or cared for appropriately when they first develop symptoms, Will that prevent it from progressing? We don't have any good prevention for that, and we we can't predict which of these babies will progress from a cold to a lower respiratory infe infection itself. So really it's watching them very carefully and knowing what to watch for. If the breathing rate starts to increase or they look uncomfortable, if their nose is completely clogged, you know, young infants are obligate nose breathers, so they can't breathe and eat at the same time if their nose is completely congested. So we have to watch all of those things. And often um, the reason for hospitalization may not be related to a need for oxygen for the respiratory infection. It may be because they become dehydrated because they just can't eat. They're breathing too fast. This is Upstate's The Informed Patient Podcast. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Joe Domikowski. He's a professor of pediatrics and of microbiology and immunology at Upstate. And one of the projects he's involved with is a study on respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV. So tell us about your RSV clinical trials that you have underway. Is it true that you're following 3,000 children from several different countries in different parts of the world? The combined um, trials that we have been working on um, do include over 3,000 babies, yes, uh, in over eight countries, both in the northern and southern hemisphere. So it, it is a lot of activity in um, trying to figure out a, a safe and effective way to prevent this infection has been impossible for the last 50 years. The virus was discovered more than 50 years ago, and we have not been able to develop a vaccine for this particular infection. So the most promising uh, movement in that direction has just been in the last few years. The type of studies that we're working on now are monoclonal antibody studies, where the babies are given these monoclonal antibody injections, and then they're followed over the course of the, the cold and flu season to see which ones become infected. Because of the way the studies are designed, some of the babies actually get the antibody itself and others get a placebo or a saltwater injection. So we've been able to show how well this antibody works in a number of different circumstances in the highest risk babies. And we've just started to enroll term newborns um, in the, these trials as well, because it looks like this stuff is really working. Finally, we have a strategy that's gonna change the landscape of RSV infection for pediatricians and for families, uh, hopefully across the world, but certainly across the US. The way you described it sounds like a, a vaccine, but it but it's not a vaccine, is it? Well, it's an immunization, and um, broadly speaking, immunizations are divided into two major categories. We have active immunization, typically referred to as vaccines, where we give doses in combination over time, 
and eventually are able to boost doses or boost immunity so that there's long-term protection. The other type of immunization is called passive immunity. That's where we just give the antibody itself because we can't figure out how to administer a vaccine by itself that can cause that same um, degree of protection. So this monoclonal antibody actually provides much higher level protection than even a natural RSV infection. Wow. So would it protect the baby during, you know, toddlerhood and, and childhood, or would it protect them for life? Or I, maybe you don't know yet. Well, the, the passive definition of um, immunization means that eventually the antibody is going to wear off. It's a, it's a protein and it doesn't induce any active memory type immunity. So because we're doing it in a passive way, eventually it will wear off. And there's a tried and true concept with this because the very highest risk babies have received a similar type of antibody for, for more than a decade and a half. And we know that it works very well, but the downside is they need monthly injections. The change for this new strategy was uh, to make the antibody more potent at neutralizing virus, but also to have a much longer half-life. So some very fine biochemical tricks were used to take this antibody, instead of a half-life of 19 days, it has a half-life of more than 100 days. So a single dose at the beginning of RSV season can offer protection for five months or longer. And that's most important during the first year of life because that's when most of the more severe illness happens. So are you still recruiting new participants? We are until the end of January, and then um, we're closing to new enrollment because we want to make sure these babies are enrolled during a time when RSV is present in the community so we can look at how well the antibody is protecting them. So for those who are participating, what is involved? They come in for the uh, screening visit to make sure they meet all of the criteria that are proposed in the protocol itself, and if so, uh, we basically take a, a blood sample to look at their antibody levels at baseline, and they get the, the product, the investigational monoclonal antibody at the same visit. They will be randomized, of course, to get placebo, but none of us will know who gets placebo and who gets the, the antibody itself. It's a three to one ratio, so for every three children that get the antibody, only one will get placebo. So chances are pretty good that they'll get the, the real thing. And then if over the winter months, the baby becomes sick, does the parent call you or do you get involved with them in any way after that? Yep, we follow them for a full year and uh, we do passive um, surveillance where we ask them to call anytime the baby develops any kind of respiratory signs or symptoms. And we also do active surveillance where we reach out and, and touch base with the families at very specific times over the course of the year. We also bring them in uh, two other times for blood work to check their antibody levels to watch how the neutralizing antibody that they got at the beginning decays over time. So the pharmacokinetics, if you will, of how well the antibody will last in their system. Now, since you've looked at this disease in babies in other countries, I wonder, um, are there similarities or differences between how RSV presents in different countries or how it's treated? The clinical presentation is very similar, and since we don't really have any treatment other than trying to keep the nose as clear as possible and bringing them into the hospital to support their hydration or give them extra oxygen or even more invasive type of uh, respiratory support, it really depends on the um, hospital system and the resources that are available in that country. 
Of course, we have optimal health care in the U.S. for young infants, and we can maximize the, the support that we can offer them. But in, um, in underdeveloped countries, often babies will just suffer at home, and if they can't work their way through the infection, many of them will die. So the main difference between what happens in the developed world and the underdeveloped world is that access to health care, that high end of health care, a subset of those kids will die. So infant mortality is still quite high from RSV infection uh, if we're talking about areas of the world that aren't like the United States. Has the COVID pandemic had an impact on RSV in any way? It sure did. When we first shut things down in March of um, 2020, uh, we were in the middle of one of these studies and we were at the end of our usual typical RSV season. We were getting two or three families calling us because the kids had respiratory symptoms from whatever cold and flu virus happened to be going around. And so we were doing surveillance and taking nasal swabs on all of those kids every time they called us. Well, about a week after we shut everything down, those phone calls stopped completely. We didn't hear anything at all, nothing. And we were kind of surprised because we expect RSV to kind of linger through April and even maybe into the first part of May, typically in upstate New York. Um, we said, okay, well, you know, all the masking and social distancing must be influencing this to some degree. We'll just wait for RSV to come back at Halloween or Thanksgiving time in the, in the fall. And it did not, it just disappeared. And we didn't have an RSV season that subsequent year at all until the following summer. It wasn't until July we started seeing cases and we never see RSV disease in infants in the summer in central New York. We just don't see it. So to have uh, outbreaks, it wasn't an epidemic, but to see, see outbreaks in clusters of infection in July and August was extremely unusual. Uh, and I really think it has a lot to do with uh, relaxation of the distancing and the masking that people were doing, which was really protecting the babies from RSV and many other respiratory viral infections, including influenza. That's very curious. So it was it was just like uh, a normal outbreak, except that it happened in July. It started in uh, this past July, and it has continued. So normally the RSV season that we suffer and, and deal with every year. We do not look forward to this as pediatricians. We know it's coming and we just dread it. But we knew it was coming eventually. Uh, when it appeared early, we thought, well, maybe it'll fizzle out in five or six months. Nope, it has not. We continue to see them even now into January. And um, at this point, it's expected that we will continue to see cases of um, babies hospitalized with RSV infection even into March and April because it's behaving now more like it used to in a typical season. It just started very early. Well, I'm sure you would not want parents to panic, but what do they need to know if their pediatrician diagnoses their child with RSV? Yeah, just watch for carefully for signs and symptoms of inability to feed effectively, you know, depending on the baby's age, if they're nursing or if they're taking a bottle. You want to make sure that they're not struggling to to feed because they're trying to breathe instead, right? So in, if that starts to happen, we, we bring those babies into the hospital and we support them the best we can. We keep their, their nose and their upper respiratory tract as clear as we can using suctioning techniques and uh, saltwater syringe with a, a bulb syringe to clean out their nose. 
but there really isn't anything else that we can offer them as an outpatient because nothing works. Things have been tried and they just do not change the natural course of this infection. When we bring them in the hospital, that's also true, but we have IVs. We can put IVs into babies and hydrate them up. Um, you know, we can have a nurse at the bedside keeping their nose as clean and as clear as possible and supplemental oxygen or more um, invasive types of respiratory support as needed. So when those events um, start to be considered, that's when we bring the babies in. And the younger they are, the more inclined we are to hospitalize them. Well, good luck with the clinical trials, and I really appreciate you making time for this interview. My pleasure. Thanks for getting the word out. My guest has been Dr. Joe Domikowski, a professor of pediatrics and of microbiology and immunology at Upstate, and the principal investigator of a clinical trial on RSV. The Informed Patient is a podcast covering health, science, and medicine, brought to you by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Find our archive of previous episodes at upstate.edu informed. I'm your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.